Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today, podcast producer and Yiddish Book Center fellow Zeke Levine and I are taking the Schmooze on the road to Boston. Along for the ride are Yiddish Book Center fellows Miranda, Rafi, and Alyssa. We're all heading to Boston for a visit to the Vilna Shul, where the Vilna's executive director, Barnett Kessel, will be taking us on a private tour of this historic Boston landmark. The Vilna Shul is the last immigrant Irish synagogue that exists in downtown Boston. Located in historic Beacon Hill, the Vilna currently operates as a cultural center celebrating Jewish culture and its intersection with other cultures. So here we go. Enjoy the ride. It's quite a destination. First impressions? It's very nice. I like the I like the walls. That's beautiful. I like the chandelier yeah. with the Star of David and the lights coming off it. I've never seen that. So you're uh, so you're on the north slope of Beacon Hill, which used to be the cheap working class side of Beacon Hill. The south slope is the fancy side where the state house is and all the mansions. Um, and then this north slope goes down into this basin of a neighborhood that is called the West End that used to be Boston's version of New York's Lower East Side. So this is where all of the Eastern European Jewish immigrants starting around 1890 when they come to Boston, almost all of them land down here in the West End and on the North Slope of Beacon Hill. So 1890, there's barely 100 Jews in this neighborhood, about four acres of, of land. 1892, Tsar Alexander II is murdered, starts a wave of pogroms that uh, hadn't been seen in the Pale of Settlement, and that's the unofficial start of the wave of Eastern European Jewish immigration. By 1920, there's 40,000 Jews, from 100 to 40,000 in this small neighborhood. Now, this small neighborhood was already dense and compact and multi-ethnic with Italian immigrants, Irish immigrants, and a very vibrant African-American community uh, of freed slaves, runaway slaves, abolitionists. And so all of these uh, ethnic groups stuffed into this four-acre plot of land. At the heyday of this neighborhood, there were over 20 synagogues just in this four acres of land. And if you take a wider look of the city of Boston in total, the same uh, historic, storied uh, Eastern European wave of immigration, there were over 50 synagogues in the city that, uh, that were thriving in this time period. Fast forward to today, this is the last one left. Last one left of the 20 down here in the hood and the last of 50 that were in the whole city. Everything else either burned down, torn down, turned into theater, church, condo, office building. Uh, And so the historic importance of this building, by sheer fact that it's the last one, is is really the the greatest importance of it. It was a very poor, sort of pedestrian building. There were much more beautiful synagogues from this time period that existed in the city and existed in the neighborhood. Uh, This is a very modest structure. It's called the Vilna Shul because obviously... It was founded by immigrants who came from 
back then Vilna, uh, uh, today it's Vilnius, Lithuania, back then it was in the Pale of Settlement in the Russian Empire. Um, they start arriving in the 1890s, 1893 they officially form in Yiddish a landmanschaft, uh, like a social service network. Um, and then in 1906, they score a building and go from a community that is homeless to a congregation that actually has a synagogue. The building that they get is just down the street from this location, uh, and it was the 12th Baptist Church. So they basically uh, occupy a recently vacated church. The 12th Baptist Church is a very famous church in Boston history, in Massachusetts history. Uh, that is the church where most of the soldiers who fought in the Civil War voluntary uh, 54th Regiment, the all-black regiment that fought in the Civil War, most of those soldiers came from the 12th. Uh, matter of fact, the pastor was asked to be the chaplain he declined and probably saved his own life by doing so because almost all of the soldiers died at Fort Wagner in Sumner, South Carolina. I bring it up for a couple of different reasons. So they finally have themselves a building, 1906, and they're there for almost 10 years. It was next to a public school, so the city, 1916, takes it by eminent domain, robs them of the building, the city gives them like 25 grand for the building, absolute highway robbery, and they become homeless again. And they, similar to their ancestors, they wander, not for 40 years and not a wide swath of wandering, but just wander in the neighborhood for a little less than three years and end up buying the three plots of land that this building now sits on. There were uh, three tenement houses, uh, Mixed use, retail on the bottom and, and residence on the other three floors, and then also a stable, uh, a horse stable in the back. So they level those, those structures and they build this building 1919 and finish it in 1920. The building has equal design elements of the Grand Synagogue in Vilna that goes back centuries. I mean, Vilna was known as the Jerusalem of, of Europe. Um, and a, a real cradle of, of knowledge. Uh, so this building, especially the front, the courtyard, and, the, and uh, the front doors look like the original main entrance of the Grand Synagogue in Vilna. So it has equal parts design elements from that and also plain old New England Presbyterian church elements. And if you think about it, this community was in this neighborhood for over 30 years living with their non-Jewish neighbors uh, before they build this building. So like things like the stained glass uh, and some other things that I'm, that I'm excited to show you, very Presbyterian church. And uh, was Orthodox, right? That was the only, pretty much the only game in town back then. So this is where the women sat. Uh, from my cryptic uh, comment downstairs, this looks like now a capital L. Uh, what struck me the first time I was in the building was the seating capacity in the women's section, just as much as the men's section. Um, I haven't been all over the world, but what I've seen from this time period in terms of an Orthodox synagogue, I've never seen where the women, don't shoot the messenger, but where the women have just as much seating capacity. And then I dare say the uh, 
perspective, vantage point, the line of sight for the women on a stadium-style seating a century before that was actually a term uh, to where they can see everything is, is pretty impressive. And we have some experts in history and culture that have helped us explain maybe why that is, a little bit of women's lib uh, here in Boston at the Vilna Shoal. These, uh, these immigrants were watching their non-Jewish neighbors go to church on Sundays and the women have a place to go, so why can't I have a place to go? And then, of course, this was a poor community and there was a real struggle of conscience with these religious Jews, keep the Shabbat or feed your family. You don't need to be Warren Buffett to know as an immigrant, a poor immigrant, if you take out a full day of work, a day and a half in the winter, uh, and you're struggling, that's the difference between being Shomer Shabbat and, and making sure your, your family has a roof over their head and food on the table. And so if there weren't women here, maybe there wouldn't be voice during Shabbat services. Also, it's Thank got you. two beautiful uh, crystal chandeliers, which mimic what's in the other section as well as this incredible skylight. Right. And so the three skylights in the building just throw so much beautiful uh, natural light in. And, and um, yeah, just all of the design elements that are in the main part of the sanctuary where the men sat and where the central bima is, they're replicated exactly for the women. And, and that's not always the case in, in historic synagogues. Um, uh, that are preserved or lost to history. Yeah. Um, the building, it's, it's hard for you to see, first of all, how attractive I am, but also how attractive the building is. And on the walls, we have what we think are the only existing examples of multi-layered folk art murals in a Jewish space in all of North America. So... We have on the walls three distinct hand-painted murals, one painted over the other, painted over the other, and then a yellow paint scheme uh, painted over that. And the ceiling has one very ornate detailed paint scheme with a blue paint put on uh, sometime uh, after that. And so we endeavor to restore the building uh, and one of the most important things in terms of a restoration is to uh, showcase all three of the murals. And, of course, we'll have to showcase this yellow final paint color that they put on. And um, f for your listeners, you can't see there's also a lot of square footage that has been um, that history has not been kind to, and that gives us an opportunity to replicate some of the paint, but we'll also want to leave a little bit, a couple of square feet under glass and say, look, this is what the building looked like when it was rescued, because um, to sort of go back to history, uh, so this building opens in the 1920s, and by then the, the neighborhood is already transitioning and and these people are doing a little bit better for themselves and moving into nicer parts of the city and then eventually out to the suburbs. So this building is overbuilt from the minute it opened. I think I mentioned that uh, downstairs. And to fast forward through a half a century, by the 60s and 70s, there's barely a community left here. By the 80s, there's one member left of the congregation, and he's using the building as his own personal warehouse, has 
boarding, uh, boarding houses and, and apartments in the neighborhood and what furniture he doesn't have in those places he's leaving here. He's not heating the building, not taking care of it. In 1985, he goes out, locks the gate, gets mugged on Phillips Street, decides to sell the building. Well, you can't sell the building, and by then the jig is up and people know that he's trying to sell the building in the last of 20 down here, the last of 50. Um, and uh, it's, it's 10 years of legal wrangling, but the building is rescued. Uh, and when it is rescued, it's basically a condemned structure. These beautiful uh, skylights that, that the audience can see uh, was broken. All the glass windows either uh, broken or boarded up. Uh, all sorts of creatures running through the building. And so uh, they immediately, once they rescued the building, they being the nonprofit that I worked for, in 1995, they pour a million and a half dollars into the building just to, uh, to stabilize it. And we are, are very excited to be in the midst of a capital campaign to fully restore the building and modernize it, make it fully accessible and uh, uh, modern systems to protect the artwork that we're about to restore and be a destination for traveling exhibits and, and temporary exhibits. And I would, uh, I'd show the, the audience if I could, but in the back of the women's section is an example of the very first original paint layer put on in the building uh, early in the 20s. And if you were to see our website, and I'm sure there'll be some photos uh, that you'll have that uh, associate it. So uh, the story goes, we had uh, some researchers here, and they were researching the layers of paint, and they find a palm tree in the back of the women's gallery. And one of the researchers is very, very intrigued, helps the Vilna uh, get some grant money to restore this back wall. And uh, for a summer, uh, a crew of six or eight people are working every day to get down to this very first layer. And what they find is on the right an image of Rachel's tomb and on the left an image of the Machpelah, the, the cave of the patriarchs, which is also the cave of the matriarchs, but the ladies don't get proper billing. And so, you know, like the joke goes, who's buried in Grant's tomb, we know who's buried in Rachel's tomb, and who's buried in the cave of the patriarchs, so Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, and then Rachel in her own tomb. So four of the most important women in the Old Testament are represented on the back wall of the women's gallery in the old Vilna Shoal, uh, and that's pretty cool to me. Um, and, you know, this is classic biblical imagery for immigrants, poor immigrants from the Russian Empire that never had a chance to go to, you know, Palestine back then to see these places, to see the promised land. Uh, so we find very interesting how the images are painted on here. And, for example, the image of the mosque at the Machpelah is, I mean, it was a chapel, but it's been a mosque for centuries. So the image that's on the back wall of the Vilna Shul is completely incorrect. It doesn't look, the building does not look anything like that. Short of the two minarets and palm trees, uh, the structure is actually very angular, rectangular structure, and this is rounded. And so Lisa and I were talking, 
the Vilna Shul has always been intrigued. Why was that painted so incorrectly? Did someone, did someone just tell the artist, paint a mosque? We know it's a mosque. We're pretty sure that none of the congregants had the wherewithal to actually go to Palestine back then and see it and come back with a photograph or a, or a mental image. So did someone see a postcard and misremember it? Is there a postcard out there somewhere that has an image of the, the mosque incorrectly? And we'd love to f- connect the dots if that's, if, that's, uh, if that's the case. So you can see we definitely need some restoration. Uh, couldn't have asked for a better, uh, <laughs> better timing. Yeah, yeah, and you know, the columns—they were—they were a poor community. They had no extra money from a design standpoint to build columns in the space, so they did what they could, which was paint columns. And we know that there's columns that uh, are in every corner and frame every window, uh, and so that's the first paint scheme. And then there's two other paint schemes. Over that, the last one is this very Art Nouveau um, that you can see very abstract with beautiful whimsical colors and lots of flowers. And uh, yeah, we're very excited to bring all three of these murals back in various places upstairs upstairs here and bring back the, the ceiling, which is, also, uh, which is also beautiful. And the ceiling in the women's gallery also has examples of all 12 signs of the zodiac which you might not think is very jewish but there's lots of examples in in uh in europe of the zodiac signs adorning uh jewish synagogues and you can see right here there's uh there's a scorpion underneath these three trees up in the in the one in this front right corner of the women's gallery Saw that I sort of sparked up and looked over to yes. Alyssa, um, who works with bibliography, because we've been doing a lot with some of the Yiddish books that we have in our collection, and a few of the fellows have been unearthing favorites, which include some books on astrology. With Sa- yeah, Sadie, who was a fellow last year, did uh-huh. a whole thing about um, finding books on astrology oh, and so sleuthing cool. about. Yeah, so there is there is that connection. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I often like to show people this arc that adorns the front of the sanctuary. So they bought this when they were in that church space that the, in the old 12th Baptist Church. Um, so they bought it 1906, 1907. So we get a lot of visitors that come and they say, oh, this building was built in the 1919, 1920. That must be a Sam Katz Ark. Like, well, no, they schlepped it with them from the church. Sam Katz was a kid when they actually bought it. And if you take out all the Judaica, um, you can see that it looks like a piece of furniture, and they actually bought it from a furniture catalog, and they wanted to make make it look like it belonged in one of the fancy mansions on the other side of Beacon Hill, uh, and then they adorned it with all the Judaic. And the, the reason why I like to look at this is, for me, this shows their psyche and their mindset, that they were proud to be New Americans, they were proud to be Jewish, and they were also proud to be New Englanders, Bostonians, and I'll show you uh, that in one second, and also proud of their Lithuanian heritage. Uh, They put a huge 
stained glass, Magin David window out front because they're, you know, now comfortable to be able to say this is a Jewish space and, and, there, and there's safety and security in, the, in America to do that. But if you look at the ark, from top to bottom, there's a big, juicy, bald American eagle on the top. You can't, I mean... You can't miss that. Stevie Wonder would tell you that looks very American. <laughs> but look at the, uh, the near Tamid. So the eternal light, which is obviously uh, standard operating equipment on any ark, but the sunburst behind it, I would suggest to you that that is very Presbyterian church. I might recall seeing that behind J.C. or Mary uh, in a church, you know, like a sunburst behind their head. And then, right, below that, uh, we have the ancient sign of the Kohanim of the high priest, um, and we love to tell people the story of Leonard Nimoy, may his soul rest in peace, who was a famous Boston West Ender. Um, his dad was a barber uh, down here, and uh, he has gone on record that that's where he stole the live long and prosper. And so we, we often uh, love to show tourists that and show how they can separate the hands and fold the thumb and get the Vulcan sign. We have a great, or one of our oral histories was an interview with uh, Leonard Nimoy, uh-huh. in which he does he reveals and talks about the fact that he had to come up with something for Star Trek, and he remembered um, being in Shul and this. So, so seeing cool. that up there is great. It's so cool, yeah. And he he uh, he was kind enough to narrate a few videos that we have on our site also, and then uh, some of the other accoutrements in this arc, uh, you know, two lions and the crown and the. The tablets, um, you know, those are obviously Jewish. I'm going to bring you guys up here on the bima here by the ark because I want to show you behind the, the beautiful drapes that are in front of the doors of the, of the ark. Um, if I pull back the curtains... You can see some just beautiful uh, carvings on the two doors, uh, some rosettes. But I'll ask you to tell your listeners in the center panel, in the carving, you'll notice uh, what? Clamshells. Clamshells. Thank you, Lisa. So, uh, not what you would expect. Some just some. Uh, I, I assume tasty uh, traif, right? Uh, you would never think of seeing a boar's head on the front of a door of an ark in any other synagogue, but very New England, right? The shells are very New England, and again, fitting into the neighborhood, um, they had no problem with not two, but four clamshells adorning the doors of their of of their uh, of their ark, and I and I just we get a big kick out of that, and unfortunately, we. We rely on what oral histories we can get today and what we've got, what we've, what we were able to get in the recent past. But we have no records from this congregation. That last, that last congregant that I was telling you about did us a favor and to make room for all this furniture, threw out all the minutes from all the board meetings and all the records. So we have to have the building talk to us in order for us to understand some of the some of the history. Is anybody 
still around who remembers us? Sure. Yep. We still get some visitors. Uh, we had a young man who was bar mitzvahed here, had never been back in the building since his bar mitzvah, and came a couple of winters ago at 97, and we had a little ceremony right in front of the uh, Bima. It was really cool. We've since lost him, but it was a real treat to have him in the building. And then we also had an interesting visitor a couple summers ago, a woman who lived across the street, happened to be African-American, and she was given a nickel on Shabbat to come in, turn the lights on, and turn the stove on, was never allowed to get any further in the building than the kitchen. So we were excited to bring her fully into the building, bring her up here to the sanctuary, and she weeped at the opportunity finally to be in the building uh, up in the sanctuary, and that was, that was, that was really fun. And, and uh, there's lots of other stories, but those are the two that, that come to mind that are just really the most moving in my in my history here. I think those are really great illustrations of the importance of the building and the fact that it will be preserved. I mean, it is such, it's so integrated into the history of Boston, the history of an immigrant neighborhood, the Jewish story in terms of immigration and perseverance and, uh, and settling into a new country. And to now have this for those of us who didn't know that time, really, um, it's quite I, I think it's appropriate to say quite moving to be in here and to see this, um, to see some of the simplicity and yet some of the elegance of this and to know what what this um, was in terms of its central place in the neighborhood. Thank you. Yeah, and we're trying to make it a central place again for the for the neighborhood and for the city and really for for as far out as people will want to come. We're working hard to make it the central address for Jewish life in downtown Boston for everybody, and for everybody is a bit of poetry for us. It's Jews and not Jews. It's young people and people who aren't so young. It's people that call this neighborhood home or call the city home or any of the neighborhoods in the city or some of the suburbs. It's student groups that come. It's tourists that come. Um, it's age groups from young families to post-collegiate to older than post-collegiate, uh, and, and, and we're excited to, to do that for the city, to do that for uh, the population that's really thirsty for a place to connect that doesn't, that doesn't make them fit into a category, that doesn't make them, uh, uh, you know, call give them give themselves a label um and whether it's music or film or lecture or learning uh or just social opportunities for social opportunity sake um these are these are the things that we're doing approximately 120 uh programs a year um and we'd like to have the place filled morning noon and night seven days a week Great. Um, thank you so much for taking the time today to tour us around. It's really quite something. I'm sorry, listeners. You need to come here in person to see it yeah. because yeah, it's really 
Really incredible. Um, and a quick last question for you, since we're doing Jewish Boston. Uh, I know that I was here for a tour during the Cajun Conference, the uh, American Jewish Museum collaboration, and uh, we had this incredible tour of the neighborhood that you made possible, and I believe that there still is a walking tour that people can take, which puts this into the sort of context of the neighborhood and the evolution of it. Sure. I mean, anyone, anyone who's interested in that, Lisa, can certainly contact us at vilnashol.org, uh, but our, our friends at Boston by Foot have a tour that we've helped uh, percolate with them that is a walking tour of Jewish Boston. So it takes them through the west end, this north slope of Beacon Hill, and even the north end of Boston, which everyone knows as the storied uh, Italian neighborhood. Well, before it was an Italian neighborhood, it was an Irish neighborhood. And in between those two periods, it was this bustling and colorful Jewish neighborhood. Um, and this will probably make the cutting room floor, but my favorite pizza by the slice restaurant in the North End, we have a picture of that storefront at the turn of the century. It was a general store with uh, Yiddish writing out on the, on the uh, storefront. It won't make it on the cutting floor because I was going to ask you for your favorite um, little anecdote. The Yiddish is not still on the building. The The Yiddish is not on the long gone. But hey, what's the pizza place? That's Uh, important. They're not going to pay us, so I'll tell you once we're done. (laughs) Yeah, what's under this part of the building? So right now... Quickly, so Rafi's asking what's under this part, which is underneath the women's balcony, otherwise described by Barnett earlier as... The L part. And downstairs of, is the yeah. lowercase L. Yes. So downstairs in the sort of bake, what was the bake at our community room, is just a uh, just a rectangular space. And up here, uh, the building, the, the room is like a capital L. So the the former women's gallery, that space up here on the f- second floor does not translate on the ground floor. So uh, what's there now is a bit of crawl space and just a lot of dirt. So. Our plan is to excavate under the women's gallery by hand, five-gallon pail at a time, and get rid of it by pickup truck and get almost a 1,000 square feet of new space. This is going with the slope upward. No, so the slope goes, right. So that's why you, why is there a slope, why is there a gentle slope up in the women's gallery? Is that the way Beacon Hill is going up? But no, Beacon Hill is going up perpendicular to that. So there's really no reason that I can tell you short of it's good for the women to be able to see over their hats I I don't know Um, and so we're going to excavate under all of that and we're going to put finally legitimate office space in there two universally accessible restrooms some storage and uh, a great multi-purpose room that'll be a conference room a classroom um, and and some other uh, uses for it as well be really lucky and find the postcard. Maybe it's under there. We've actually been under there, uh, uh, underneath the women's gallery, just doing some research with our construction uh, engineers and professionals, just making sure that it's uh, how far back and out we can go. Uh, And it's it's really exciting modern space in a 99-year-old former synagogue. It's really cool. Thanks, that's a good question. Thank you. And when you, when you guys research these paintings, 
and you let's say you decided on this wall here in the women's gallery that it should be the first the original painting do you also still preserve i don't know digitally in a sketch the the second and third exactly so part of the conservation plan is to record the earlier two paint schemes if you're going to burn through them to get to the original you can't just burn through them and forget them so to to document each of them completely with photographs and and studies of them yeah absolutely um and you know it's our hope that technology and and cost um keep up with all of that so that we could have a uh, uh, augmented reality where we can have someone put on some glasses and be able to see the space you know from the 20s and the and what it looked like in the 30s and then the last paint scheme that'd be pretty neat you've been listening to the schmooze a production of the yish book center in amherst massachusetts my name is tomer stern development fellow here at the center for more information about this podcast and to subscribe please visit yiddishbookcenter.org while you're there I recommend listening to episode 165, Lisa Newman's November 2017 conversation with Janet Rusek and David Scheinbaum about their new book, Remnants, Photographs of the Lower East Side. Until next time, be well, be healthy. Sai